talk to you of art. Yes. For there is nothing else. Are you all ready to join you today in our trip to outer space? Come along quietly or not. You can have all the talent in the world and never get anywhere. Some artists may take hope and let you bite upon it. And now, without further ado, Sitting here with Bob Wright, and I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Okay. Hi, Albert. Uh, it's really great to be here with you doing this. And, um, my background, I'm from Staten Island, New York, and I'm a songwriter. And I've kind of specialized in the last 15 years or so in writing songs about where I'm from. I uh, do other things, too. I have a big, long bluegrass background. I was in a band called the Risky Business Bluegrass Band for about 20 years. And so a lot of people think of me as a bluegrass player, and that influences a lot of what I do. But what I really like to call it is what I, the songs I write are neo-traditional, in, in the sense that I want to honor the tradition, and I want people to be able to hear the tradition in there, but I want it to be something new, something that I've created that reflects on maybe things that are happening now, or even the things that happened in the past that come forward with us, because those things are part of who we are and what we do, whether we want to believe it or not. Mm. And a lot of the music you do is based on the history of Staten Island. Yep. So can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I have a fairly long history with Staten Island. My mother's family has been there probably since the maybe the 1840s, certainly the 1860s. My father's family, not as long. They came there in about 1906 or something. But, uh, and my grandfather, his father was a tugboat captain and worked mm -hmm. in the harbor and, and was, his tug was on Staten Island. And uh, so my grandmother, my mother's mother was born there. Okay. And, and, and had some, and she was a real storyteller and had some great stories. And they all loved music. My mother was a dancer. My father was a big college football star. But, um, so he was, he could dance well too and family parties were always about dancing they primarily their generation was big band music so we listened to a lot of that mm -hmm. my mother knew all kinds of dances and and uh, a lot of Irish music traditional American folk songs probably you know mm -hmm. people would listen to or, or know and as a kid growing up you'd hear you would hear those things mm -hmm. as far as it's indigenous music to Staten Island that's harder to pin down Right. You know, because New York is a tricky place that way. When you go to North Carolina or Virginia, and I go down those places, and I know a lot of people down there, and there's great music down there, but the songs have seemed like they've grown out of the ground there, you know, mm -hmm. because they've been, at times they were isolated by the hollers and stuff. But New York, because it's such a dynamic place with so many different people coming and going all the time, it, it changes a lot, you know, so it's hard to get a grip on what's hardcore New York folk music right. or traditional music, you know. But the good thing about that is you're influenced by everything. You know, you and I was always had pretty open ears as far as listening to music. You know, I mean, obviously I got caught up in the big folk thing. Right. And uh, started listening to the Kingston Trio. Like a lot of guys, I knew banjo players, particularly so I play banjo, guitar, mandolin and stuff. And... A lot of banjo players cite the Kingston Tree was an early influence. Mm. And from there, I quickly got into, you know, Pete Seeger and, and when I Earl Scruggs, it just blew my brain right. apart, you know. And, but I think what you do is, is you start to trace 
back. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, wow, I like this guy, but where'd he come from? You know, how did he develop that? How, how did he learn to play that? Who taught him? And right. what was he listening to? You know, and Earl, for instance, he he, he talked about when he was a kid, they got a, a record player down there in North Carolina, and three record scans, a crank, you know, gramophone kind of thing, mm-hmm. and three records came with it. And one of them was a song uh, by the, the New Orleans Rhythm Kings called "The Farewell Blues." which he turned into one of his most popular banjo tunes which uh i play too once in a while you know and and, but there's that lineage that comes through the music first time i heard really like bill monroe was a friend of mine in high school he he sang mule skinner blues at a in in the auditorium one day and just Mm -hmm. knocked me out you know and and it sounded great. And when I listened to Monroe at that time, as like a 16-year-old, whatever I was, I was like, oh, my God, my ears hurt, you know? Because <laughs> I wasn't, you know, it's like you're trying to drink something straight right? when you haven't, you've never tried it before. And it, it takes some time to appreciate his genius. And uh, I think I mentioned to you about, it, you know, his feeling was you, you play the ancient tones. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and Monroe was pretty strong in his likes and dislikes. And his influences came in in that way too. He grew up, his family all played, and he lived with his uncle Penn, who was a fiddler who played lots of dances and stuff. But the third guy they played with was a guy named Arnold Schwartz, who was a, a black guy and he was a, a blues player. Mm-hmm. And Monroe always credited him with with putting the blues into bluegrass, because bluegrass was different, you know, than country music at that right. time, even though it was still called country music. And uh, it, the funny thing with bluegrass is it's contemporary with rock and roll. You know, they both started in the late '40s, early '50s. You know, growing out of but growing out of other traditions in the same tradition. You right. know, rock and roll was more Memphis, and bluegrass was more, you know, Tennessee, Kentucky, Bristol, the Bristol area. Mm-hmm. You know, where Jimmy Rogers and all those guys recorded. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's I bought that book with me, that Barry Mazur book, which is about mm-hmm. the Bristol sessions and and Ralph Peer, and he. It's just amazing how catalytic all that coming together there was in that one spot, you know, which just happened to be kind of a, a good crossroads for everybody could meet. So, Bob, what would you say at the time was the main way that this music got spread around? Well, it was the avail- the availability of recordings, I think, that mm-hmm. that really kick-started a lot of it. Because once people realized that, you know, they've been sitting around wherever they were, whether they were in upstate New York or down in North Carolina, wherever they were, they realized that, hey, you know, I can make some money doing this. And now mm-hmm. it was available for other people to hear it. If you lived in a small town anywhere in this country, you might spend your whole life within a 20-month period. Right. So you don't know anybody else's dialect. You don't know anybody else's music. Now when it starts to become more universal, people start to listen to other things. You take, you know, Charlie Poole. He, like a lot of guys down there, played what was popular a lot of times. Not just, you know, Barbara Allen and, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and, and old English folk songs. Right. And a lot of those towns, they would hire professional musicians, serious musicians, to come down and, and teach people, you know, and they teach them opera, they teach them classical music, they teach them a lot of different things. And uh, so those guys, and they were just starting to see movies and stuff, and it influenced a lot of the 
way the music went and, and the different influences and, and tempos and things that came into it. Mm-hmm. I mean, Pete Seeger said one time, I think this five, I don't remember exactly, five rhythms that are common to every music, you know, so you get, you, if you hit the right one, everybody can relate to it because it's common to everybody. Um, there are a lot of musicians who are very hesitant to record because they had a successful, maybe they had a successful um, live show in the early days of recording. Because um, I know like Bessie Smith didn't want to initially record because it was known that like the record industries weren't, they, they would screw over. Well, what goes around like, comes around. Right. It's kind of like what's happening now. I mean, the only mm-hmm. way you make money is going out. And, and playing because right. it's very difficult to sell CDs because a lot of people don't want to buy CDs anymore and a lot of people don't want to pay for music period right and yeah that was a fear with a lot of people like okay I'm going to make this one record and you know 50,000 people can listen to it but they're not paying to come see me you know right the, yeah the whole recording thing I mean and I think obviously there, there was a period probably from the 50s until 15 years ago where people made a lot of money from recordings mm-hmm. I mean like you know outrageous amounts of money which is not probably ever going to happen again so people aren't so afraid of recording anymore you know Mm -hmm. but i think the other thing that a lot of players were afraid of when they was they just got paid for the session you know if they got that right and their names weren't put most importantly on the album as the owner of the copyright of the song Mm -hmm. You know, and so any royalties, and that's where the big money is. Right. You know, you get the royalties for, for that song being played. Mm-hmm. But whoever was producing them or managing them would put their name on there. Right. You know, so if somebody come in, you get, you know, like you're talking about Rainey before, I mean, in the, in the play of Black Bottom, that's what she's talking about a lot. You know, how, you know, he's putting his name on it and he's giving us like 25 bucks for the session, which was a lot of money then, but it's one session. And he's going to mm-hmm. sell 10, 20, right. 30,000 records. You know, and he's going to make a ton of money. And that was a big fear for a lot of people. Mm. And man sure does blow a wicked whistle, don't he? Blue singer, women blue singers. Oh, yeah. For that. And at war to, to, to be lesbian. Yeah. You know, and uh, it's probably more common than we thought. My grandmother used to talk about on Staten Island... Uh, this, this, she was referred to in the Starlight Kitty and Moonlight Nell, mm-hmm. which I wrote a song about them. Yes. And uh, she said there were some women who hung out in the bars, you know, and, and but so I created this scenario about what probably was like for them. in a place where the boys knew the faces and the smoke from the bars hid their eyes they could be who you wanted without any traces of malice and traces of lies 
when they dance at the castle ten high on a hill or wait by the silver lakeside starlight kitty and moonlight now come on boys let's go for a ride They walked everywhere And the women would stare As they walked hand in hand Through the streets And they welcomed the night When the flicker of gaslight Made them both beauties to see Then they danced at the castle Ten high on a hill Oh, wait by the Silver Lakeside Starlight Kitty and Moonlight Nell Come on, boys, let's go for a ride Starlight Kitty and Moonlight Nell Come on, boys, let's go for a ride I've been listening to this, because that's on this, this the Harbortown CD. Yeah, yeah. And I've been listening to that song. It's cool to have that background to it now. Yeah. Yeah, it's a true story. I mean, most, a lot of the stuff on my CDs are based in the truth. Um, when I did the Oyster one, a woman called me up. Her name is Emily Driscoll. It's still her name, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I had, when I finished the CD, I'd gotten a grant to do it. And I wanted to just kind of encapsulate what New York was like when oysters were still a viable mm -hmm. thing. And because it was a huge industry in New York City. And uh, so Emily calls me up and I had sent out a bunch of CDs. And I sent them to New York, New Jersey Baykeepers Association. Mm -hmm. She was over there filming. She, she did, she's a documentary filmmaker. Okay. And she was doing a film about oysters. And she was over there filming. And they gave her the CD, and they said, you should have this CD, you should hear this. You know? mm -hmm. So she took it home <laughs> and listened to it, and calls me up, and she says, could I use some of your songs in my documentary? And I was like, yeah, sure. She says, you know, it's funny. I said, she said, it's like you read my mind. She said, it's like, you must have done the same research I did, because everything on here just meshes with everything I've done. And I said, well, I did a lot of research for it, because... If I'm going to do it, I want it to be as accurate as it can be. You know, right. it's always never going to be 100 percent. But and uh, so she did. She did a do documentary called Shell Shocked, and she just, you know, bits and pieces of a couple of songs. And then there's a banjo instrumental on there called um, Oyster Aristocracy that mm. she used kind of throughout a lot of the film. Cool. You know, it's kind of a quiet banjo kind of piece.
but yeah, you just don't know where those things will go, you know. Yeah. But doing the research and, and being accurate is pretty important, I think. Yeah, that's like, I don't know, I feel like that kind of Staten Island history, unless you dig, for me, unless I dig for it, mm-hmm. I don't really find too much about it. Because yeah. well, you know, it feels like the Forgotten Borough. And it's, yeah. it's joked about, but it's it is joked in about, a way. Yeah, and it's it's changing. I think. I mean, that's why I did the Harbortown CD when I did it, you know, because I always told people I just got tired of people telling me that nothing happened here, mm-hmm. you know, and what I get from people it shows is they they'll come up and say, "Oh man, I didn't know that about Staten Island," and they would say almost the same thing. It's like it almost makes me proud to be from here. I you tell them almost. I'm working. I'm working on the almost. Yeah. You know? And and even the Oyster CD that came about because I wanted to keep because Staten Island I mean that was its main living for a long time it was was a huge oystering place there were billions of oysters in the harbor that the Dutch ate through them and then the English and and they started bringing them up from down south the, the the sprats to to seed the oyster beds because they weren't flourishing anymore. And that's how Sandy Ground started, you know, the, mm-hmm. that, that free black, this first, one of the first free black communities in the country, was guys coming up on the oyster boats and going, I don't have to go back, I can do this yeah. here, you know. So yeah, could you, would you mind going a little bit more into that? Um, Went into Sandy Ground? Or? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Sandy Ground was on the south shore of Staten Island, like I said, um, mostly from like Snow Hill, Maryland, down in that area. The black oystermen would come up on the on the oyster sloops to bring up the seed oysters to replenish the beds because there was so many oysters being eaten by, and there was the oysters were shipped all over the world and all over the country, and uh, they they had a hard time keeping up with with the demand. Then they would have to reseed the beds every once in a while, and they came up and they were out there in Raritan Bay, and I guess looking at Staten Island and thinking, well, you know. Why should I go back and 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 be a slave? I can just stay here, you know. Mm-hmm. And they did, and 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 they flourished. They had their own oyster boats, and the community is not really so much there anymore, um, which is a shame. There's a little museum out there. Um, there's about three or four of the original houses, and and the churchyard and the cemetery that is still there. Um, and you know, there's a few descendants who kind of keep the flame alive, which is good. up here from Maryland from a place they call Snow Hill where you had to be as white as snow to exercise free will I heard the oysters here were sweet as any to be found so I took a chance and I ran away to live in sandy ground so pull them tongs good and strong and bring the boat about there's oysters on the bottom and the tide is running out Ain't no pearls to give the girls, no treasures to be found. But it's oysters pays to suffer when you live in sandy ground. Well, I love the tapping of the waves underneath the hull. And I love the taste of salty water and the laughing gulls. I wouldn't trade the life I've got with any to be found. And I wouldn't want to lead a life without my sandy ground. Pull them tongs good and strong and bring the boat about. There's 
there's oysters on the bottom and the tide is running out. Ain't no pearls to give the girls, no treasures to be found. But it's oysters pays for supper when you live in sandy ground. Well, the sun is fading in the west, I have to go, my friend. And you can see the light at Prince's Bay out there to guide me in. I'll sleep tonight in my own bed, and when I lay me down, I'll say a prayer of thanks that there's a place like Sandy Ground. So pull them tongs good and strong and bring the boat about. There's oysters on the bottom and the tide is running out. Ain't no pearls to give the girls, no treasure to be found. But it's oysters pays for supper when you live in Sandy Ground. Ain't no pearls to give the girls, no treasures to be found. But it's oysters pays for supper when you live in Sandy Ground. They closed the oyster beds in 1927 because people were getting sick. Okay. You know, because the from the pollution, they should probably right. should have closed them 20 years earlier. But and they they started uh, growing strawberries out there in Sandy Ground mm-hmm. and, and selling those. And one of the most co- interesting characters was uh, I don't know if that's so- there's a song on there about it that might be on the Dyer CD. There's a guy, there's a black guy named Thomas Downing, who the oyster guys on Staten Island would have known well. He was one of the most famous and and successful businessmen in New York City. He had an oyster bar called Downing's Oyster Bar mm-hmm. down around Wall Street and uh, made a ton of money. He was shipping stuff all over the world. And he was from down south originally, I believe. But he would go out himself to the oyster boats and check out the catch and, and get the best stuff for his place and bring it back. I mean, he bailed out white people with newspapers and stuff with his money. Right. And they had a big, huge parade for him when he died. You know, he's really, really cool guy. And, and of course, there's always stories about him being involved with the Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. I did a song about him, too, um, that was kind of cool because my niece was teaching up at the Little Red Schoolhouse in the village, which, you know, has always, always been a kind of interesting school, progressive school. You know, Pete Seeger used to go over there and do workshops and sing. And I think Eric Weisberg went to school there. And so, so my niece called me up and she said, "Well, we're doing, we're studying, um, well, I guess, the Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. She was teaching a fourth grade class. And she said, and I bought in your CD and I played the, the Thomas Downing, I played it, I gave it to the music teacher. And he wants to use the, the Downing's Oyster Bars song with the kids so I was like oh sure you know no problem right. and he said, she said but they're putting together a whole show for the end of the year okay said, do you think you could come in and work with the kids and teach them the song and maybe do some other stuff so I went in for a couple of days and you know two, two different fourth grade classes and I taught them the song and you know follow the drinking Gordon you know mm-hmm. some of those kinds of things and it was fun and uh, they invited me back for the final show. In the meantime, I'd gone back to the studio and had the engineer take out the vocals so that they okay. had the backing track for the show. So I went to the show, and they just killed it. I mean, it was <laughs> so cool, you know? They they played the song, they sang it, and, you know, it was, the, it was their final number of their show mm-hmm. and everything. And it was really, really kind of cool. But, that's you know, cool. but those things, you know, I mean, that's kind of why you write songs, hopefully, that 
yeah. people will use them in a productive way. Yeah. Know? A year or so ago, two years ago, I, I called it 50 folk in years, mm -hmm. just to kind of celebrate having, it was, I did it on April 4th, 2015, which would have been exactly 50 years from the very first time I actually played out in public mm -hmm. in, in high school. And, uh, and that was kind of, that was fun to do because I did a lot of songs that had influenced me plus a lot of my own songs too. Mm -hmm. And, uh, got into drug bands and that kind of stuff. And because I saw Questkin drug band on the old Steve Allen show. Okay. You know, and they just blew my head apart, you know, because they were so much fun and so good. And, uh, but I didn't get their name. It's like, I'm like, I'm like, shit. Um, I didn't get their name. So I go away to college. Right. And I walk into this guy's room, and the Questkin album is laying on the bed there, and I'm like, that's who they were, you know? <laughs> Where did you get that? I want to. So I used to go see them. Okay. Uh, you know, when they, when they came into New York. And uh, actually, Jim Questkin is going to be playing. I'm playing in Liverpool the end of the month on the 26th at the Everyman Folk Club and Jim Kuskin's playing there the following month, which is cool. And I met him a couple of times, but I, I, Bill, I knew Bill Keith, the banjo player, fairly well. Um, so you mentioned um, the Kingston Trio was yeah. one of your first influences. What were like some other like early influences and then as you got into being a musician? Well, probably like I said, influences? you know, growing up, we had a lot of big band music in the house, that kind of stuff. And I loved Hoagie Carmichael. Especially, you know, he did that. That's a lazy ball. This was like. It's like. Lazy bone, sleeping in the sun. Never gonna get your day's work done. You're never gonna get it done. Sleeping in the noonday sun. Then that's when I realized that, you know, and this is because everybody talks about much later on with this, when the whole singer-songwriter thing started, everybody started writing their own songs because they got away from Tim Pan Alley. Right. He was the first person I really remembered doing his own songs, you know, and, and that just kind of blew me away because everybody else would get songs from songwriters mm -hmm. and you never really saw the songwriters or heard the songwriters until much, much later on. Right. And uh, and then, like I said, when I saw Chuck Berry, and again, one of the obviously the guitar, his guitar work fascinated me, but it was also his lyrics, you know, because they were so clever and so much fun, mm -hmm. and they spoke of things that I wasn't that familiar with, you know, and it kind of went from there with the folk music, that obviously would that the King Century were more commercial kind of folk act, right. So they were pretty accessible, but they were doing songs that were traditional songs, a lot of them, and uh, started to delve into that. And then when I heard Earl Scruggs, you know, playing mm -hmm. the bluegrass stuff, they were doing a lot of that kind of stuff too, and it kind of branched out from there. You know, when I heard the Jug Band, you know, that it, it sounded so familiar because it was such a part of America. But it was really kind of different from everything I'd heard before because they right. synthesized it in a different way, you know, the different styles. Because the jug bands, you know, most of them came out of Memphis. Yeah. You know, Gus Cannon. I mean, there was 
I mean, they stole uh, Gus Cannon's song. He finally got royalties for it. Yeah. You know the song? Yeah, you could like, think. Yeah, Walk Right In. Yeah, yeah. It was a Gus Cannon song. Mm-hmm. And uh, he eventually, I think, did, because he was still alive. Yeah. And he did get some royalties from that. And that's people taking, you know, homemade instruments, homemade sound, you know, and, yeah. and, and taking something and making it their own, you know, and having fun with it. That Jim Kweskin, speaking of, he put an album out with a bunch of people a few years ago called The Texas Sheiks. Okay. And I put one or two cuts on, on those CDs okay, cool. from those guys, clearly influenced by the, you know them, mm-hmm. but you know with mo- a little bit more modern presentation. Well, certainly in, sonically, you know, right? It's 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 much more there, but uh, some cool stuff. And now a quick word from Ajax. Mit Stajax, der Schäumecker Klänzer, schwenkt der Hub den Schmutzen drain. Buck Dench's Moon, where I was walking to Manhattan and I was looking around and everybody was on their phones, you know, yeah. as, as they are. And I was thinking, you know, every interaction is some, there's some kind of uh, transmission going through the air to create that. Yeah. You know, those radio waves are in the air. Yeah. And... So how do you translate that into a, like an old-timey song, you know? So I started thinking about what if fiddle tunes, when you play a fiddle tune or you play any music, it just goes into the ether. You know, the sound just travels off and who knows where it goes. Right. Well, what if they bounce off the moon? So, so this is... Fill the fiddle tunes and the dancers are worn out. They need some old buck dancers just to dance them fiddles down. Cause the fiddle tunes, they don't disappear, they don't stay in the room. They keep on rising upwards and they bounce right off the moon. And the moon, it turns in near blue and sends the tunes back down. And all the old buck dancers, they'll rise up from the ground. And they hike their pants and begin to dance at the edge of the sleepy town. And the high top boots flatten out the roots of the trees for miles around. Them spirits starting stomping when they hear them fiddle tunes. And they dance all night in the pale blue light of the old buck dancer's moon. Well, well, it happens every year or so when the tunes are extra hot. And the whole ghostly contest just to see what all they got. There's the one-armed man who leads the band. There's even old Joe Clark. And when they start in stomping, all the dogs begin to bark. And the people in the village think they're howling at the moon. But if you listen close enough, they're howling right in tune. And they hike their pants and begin to dance at the edge of the sleepy town. And the high-top boots flatten out the roots of the trees for miles around. Spirits start and stomping when they hear them fiddle tune And it's all night in the pale moonlight of the old buck dancers know And when the tunes are finished and the air is sweet and clear 
They're slapping backs and making tracks and they all disappear. So fiddlers rising up your bows and do what you do best. Fill the air for another year while the old buck dancers rest. As the hike their pants and begin to dance at the edge of the sleepy town. And the high top boots flatten out the roots of the trees for miles around. Them spirits start and stomping when they hear that fiddle tune. And the dance all night in the pale blue light of the old buck dancers. You know, that's so. a really cool one, especially like hearing where you got it from. That's really neat. Yeah, and did you recognize the melody? I do. Well, the cabbage down boys tearing them hotcakes round. The only song I ever could sing was "Boil Them Cabbage Down." It's an old, old, old song. Boil them, boil them cabbage down. Okay. Mine was called Buck Dance's Moon. Mm. But a lot of people have, t and that's the, you me talking about the music and it, it lasting. That's what a lot of people have been doing is taking the old melodies right. and using those old melodies to build new songs. Guy Clark did one um, with Sean Kemp called Sis Draper. And they use you know, Arkansas Traveler. Off in the corner, mama tucked them babies all up snug. Says Draper's coming over, we're all gonna cover rug. When you see that lantern swinging yonder, coming up the hollow road, them dogs start to barking. You better tie them all up with a rope. Well, you boys better get in tune. This draper's gonna be here soon. Don't shoot no dice or get too tight. If you wanna pick with sis tonight. Boston mountains, there was lightning in the air. There was honey on them fiddle strings, magnolias in her hair. Well, she's a diamond in the rough. If you can't see the shine, that's tough. She'll play all night for the likes of us. Sister April's got the touch. She'll play all night if she feels like it. Have some fruit punch if you spike it. She don't care if you don't like it. She's got a hell of a bow on. Dropped his jaw, said she's the best I ever saw. She must be from Arkansas. Well, I think Grandpa used to date her. Grandma says she still hates her, and all the fellas stand up straighter in the presence of Sis Draper. Sis Draper, she is the devil's daughter, plays the fiddle, daddy border, plays it like her mammy taught her. She's a traveling Arkansas. It's getting awful late. She was on her way to Little Rock, and Little Rock won't wait. So we all stood out in the yard, hands all full of watermelon. Watched her leave and watched her go, wishing we was in that wagon. 
Sis Draper, she's the devil's daughter, plays that fiddle daddy board. Faded like her mammy toad, she's a traveling Arkansas. an old tune, an old melody with a new story, but, and Sister Draper apparently was a real person. Sean, oh. Camp, Sean, Sean Camp knew down in Arkansas, but, uh, you know, it's obviously, like, set back in the holler or someplace. Yeah. And, you know, so it's fun when people do that stuff, because those, those melodies, they're irresistible. They really are. I mean, the tradition comes from the old, partly from the old broadside tradition. You know what the broadsides were? No. Back in England, I mean, years and hundreds of years, probably. That's how people got the news. People would, everybody knew the melodies. So they would write the news up in a, in, to fit a melody that people knew, and people would sing it, because it's easier to remember things mm -hmm. when they're poetry or, or songs. And we'll be picking up on that topic on Bob and I's next episode together, coming up very soon. Thank you for listening to the Planet Shivers podcast. This production and others can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, and archives.org. It can also be found with video content on the Albert Shivers YouTube channel. You can find even more content on Facebook at Albert Shivers Visual Artist and on Instagram at Albert Shivers. You can find Isaac Wilson's work on Instagram at when in Zen. That's when underscore in underscore Zen. Thank you again for listening and don't forget to like and subscribe.